Welcome back to Sashimi. In this episode, I interviewed Vlad Besprozvani, the founder of Nexa Equity, a private equity firm investing in lower middle market software companies. Nexa was formed this year by Vlad and Inside Partners alumni and has already made several acquisitions. We spoke about the competition in this space, Nexa's deal sourcing, due diligence process, deal structures and exit strategies. Vlad then walked me through the acquisition of Auto Return, whose software connects law enforcement and towing companies. The international expansion strategy blew my mind away, so you better listen through the end. Vlad, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to this. Well, obviously going to be talking about uh, Nexa and private equity in SaaS in general. But before we start, maybe you can say a few words about yourself and Nexa Equity. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a lower middle market software investor, mostly focusing on control investments within the smaller scale of companies, 5 to 20 million of revenue. And we really take a growth-oriented approach as we think about the companies that we partner with really not only are they themselves growing, but we're really focused on helping expand their top line, their bottom line, as we think about partnerships with founders and management teams. And we really try to walk kind of a fine line between being hands-on and very active and helpful within our portfolio companies, but also really respecting their overall vision of what they want to build and really making sure that we are really kind of proactive in terms of helping them achieve that target in a hopefully shorter time period, whether it's through organic growth or through M&A. And what's your background? How did you end up starting the fund? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career in investment banking, uh, worked at Citigroup and then JP Morgan, and never thought I'd end up as an investor when I was growing up. Didn't really know, you know the field existed. I was raised by engineers and computer scientists and really was just kind of drawn specifically to the software market and wanting to be involved with companies throughout their entire life cycle. Had a chance to join Tomo Bravo, one of the larger private equity firms focusing on software and was a phenomenal opportunity to work with some of the best operationally minded investors, in my opinion, out there. You know, We really were taking hands-on approaches with our companies and really trying to uh, help them operate better and think through the product categories they were in, their go-to-markets, using a lot of data and analytics to be able to make better decision-making. And after a handful of years, had Insight Venture Partners, now Insight Partners, uh, Devin Parekh reached out and had an opportunity to join their team and, and firm out in New York and really help build out their control investing and, and buyout strategy. You know, Their DNA was originally in venture capital. They then extended to growth equity and, and really wanted to make more of a presence and, and have more of a foothold within their control investing strategy. So came over and really spent a lot of time on the application software side of control investing, and then on fintech doing a lot of the minority and majority investments. They dropped ventures from the name because of you, because you guys started doing control investments, huh? I, I think you know the fund size got so large that it was tough to deploy the billions of dollars with yeah. uh, just a venture strategy. But yeah, so that, that was great. And then after that, spent a handful of years working at a, a family office and yeah, a private equity uh, fund really focused on consolidations called Greater Sum Ventures, where I'd known Ross Crawley for a number of years, who was an operator at one of the companies that I had worked with when I was at Insight, came over and, and we were very active in really consolidating several sectors in the application software space and the fintech space, and really launched Nexa earlier this year because I, I saw that there was really a gap forming at the lower end of the market. You know, A lot of the funds that had been successful in the category had really scaled and grown in terms of fund size. And it wasn't just the really large funds like Tomer Bravo and 
Insight Partners, but it was really all of who I even thought of as lower middle market specialists. You know, this, their success led to larger vehicles, and in turn, really them focusing on companies that were themselves larger in scale. So at that point, really felt like there was an opportunity to go and launch a fund, really focused on partnering with founders and management teams to kind of help them, what we call kind of the scale up size of their organization, right? So as they're going from you know, that high single digit, low double digit revenue size to the 30, 40, 50 million of revenue. There's a lot of building that happens. There's a lot of, you know, opportunities. And oftentimes what we see is founders, you know, will have a really good understanding about their product, their end market, but they won't necessarily have all the tools and skill sets that especially Silicon Valley or New York-based firms will have access to. So they really kind of want that help as they think about really leaning in on the opportunities they have, whether it's hiring additional talent, putting in place metrics and systems and thinking through how they should really be operating, as well as you know, M&A is really something that companies are thinking of much earlier in their life cycle. But for the most part, founders just don't have, forget about the capital, the know-how or the expertise to be able to do a transaction for start to close. So we end up really you know, partnering with management teams to be able to do that. So we, myself, along with a team of other X-Insight investors, partnered up and really launched Nexa earlier in the year. And we've since you know, had a lot of growth and success, and, and it's been really fun. How crowded is this space or warm middle market? Yeah, so you know, I'd say the category that we're going after this size and scale of business, especially companies that were a lot of our focus areas, companies that are not only growing, you know, twenty-five to seventy-five percent, but are break-even or profitable and founder-owned. That category was really very hotly pursued, I'd say, and quite crowded and competitive in terms of the investor market five, seven years ago. But again, given the fact that a lot of these firms had a lot of success with their investments, they've really moved up market. So really, it's kind of left a vacated space. We see a a handful of groups that are targeting this area. But for the most part, our biggest competitor to an extent is the lack of a decision, right? Status quo, where the management team or the founder decide to not transact. So rather than going up against other competitive investors, we're really kind of having them think through that. That or alternatively, minority investors. But for the most part, what we found is the minority investors are writing a larger number of checks and have more portfolio companies in their funds. So therefore, in terms of the time and attention that they're able to dedicate, it's a little bit less than groups like us who have you know seven to nine investments out of our fund where we can really have a great ratio of our time or our operating partners to the portfolio companies. You kind of touched on uh, some metrics you look at, but can you provide like bullet points? What's your investment criteria for your companies are? You know, I'd say there's a broad suite of them that we kind of evaluate. As I'm sure a lot of people have said, it's more of an art than an exact science as to how you come up with a valuation and how you stack rank your pipeline. But for the most part, you know, I, I think we really prioritize the growth of a company and efficient P&L and, and making sure that their gross margins are efficient as well as they're not burning a large amount of capital. We're not big investors in companies that are, are burning, uh, but instead want to find efficient businesses where we can lean in and, and really kind of run them efficiently at either break-even optimizing for revenue or optimizing for EBITDA and really kind of run them in a profitable standpoint. So I'd say we're focused on a lot of the efficiency metrics within you know, what is their payback period for a new sale? How do we think about 
bookings momentum, I think we're like a lot of the industry, extremely focused on high retention businesses, gross booking retention, net booking retention, as well as logo. That has massive implications, not just during our ownership period, but as a company gets larger, I always think of retention as a leaky bucket. You know, If you're losing 20% of that bucket, when the bucket is small, it's easier to refill it. But as that bucket gets larger and larger, it becomes more and more difficult. And, and eventually, you're spending all your time refilling the bucket rather than adding more to it. So we spend a lot of time around customer analytics. And we kind of have you know our, our set of certain requests that we ask for a company before we really look to put an offer forward. And, and you know the customer file is probably one of the more important ones, if not the most important one for us. It allows us to draw a lot of conclusions around customer behavior, upsell behavior, downsell behavior, you know, we segment customers different ways. And oftentimes when we're doing diligence on a company, we'll present our findings and the management team may have fundamentally or qualitatively had intuitions on some things, but we're able to point out certain areas where we say, hey, you know, if you look at this subsegment of your customers, they actually are growing faster or, you know, have stronger usage and retention. And that it, they're able to reposition their go-to-market, their product strategy to really target these customers, which are much more valuable. So that really is, is an incredibly important metric for us. I think another one that we're focused on is, is alignment with management. So making sure that management is not only continuing forward from an operational standpoint, but they continue to be meaningful owners of the business. So we're typically acquiring somewhere between 55 and 80% of a business. And really that remaining piece is management and founder rollover. So we want to make sure that economically, they're aligned with us and incentivized. And, and it works as a really nice lever, actually, from a value perspective, where oftentimes the companies that we're able to partner with, you know, the CEOs uh, have a, the potential to make a significantly larger absolute dollar return when we go to mutually exit the business to whoever the next buyer is, rather than when they even took the initial funding from us. So I think that rollover percentage and that alignment with management is important. And I'd say lastly, we're looking for, I think, strong teams. It's not necessarily a metric that you kind of track, but really kind of a, one where we feel like there is a shared vision and kind of a true North Star as to what we think the vision should be for the company to make sure that once we get into the ownership period, we're all running full steam ahead. So potentially not a metric. And then we look at a lot of around market, market positioning, You know, again, probably more Qualitative assessments, but things that we really look at are, you know, how fragmented is the market? How big is the TAM? Oftentimes we're spending time in markets that are sub a billion dollars in TAM, partially because at the bite size that we're writing equity investments, we're able to really, you know, make a, a, a acquisition or, or an investment or partnership with the leading company or provider in that space rather than going and, and backing company that is in a highly competitive market and maybe lacks that differentiation. And additionally, you know, it also protects us to an extent from having a large venture capital firm be able to come in and invest, you know, 100, 200 million dollars in sales and marketing or product development, be able to kind of overnight create a market leader. We can come in and we feel like we have a good amount of room to grow within that market size. And a lot of what we do during our ownership period is also we're really looking to expand that company's TAM, whether through organic product expansion or through M&A as we look at the ancillary markets. 
And when it comes to revenue size of the typical companies you look at, yeah, so our, our sweet spot is really you know five to twenty million of revenue uh, at entry, and by the time we look to exit the businesses, they've typically grown to thirty, forty, fifty million of revenue. And the nice thing is, at least what we've seen is you know while there's been a, a meaningful uptick in valuations in the last obviously five years, you know, but even more recently, kind of from pre-COVID to post-COVID, I think. The softer business model has been incredibly resilient to, to a large extent. The public markets and even the private markets have really seen the value. That has had a much less of a trickle down effect and impact at the area where we're investing. So we're oftentimes able to get really attractive valuation multiples for companies at that size and scale, whereas the market becomes much more competitive as you look at companies that are north of 20 million in revenue. And people are paying significantly higher prices and multiples. So part of the reason we look to invest in that space is they're more attractive entry multiples and return curves as we think about our hold period. Can you quantify the attractive multiple? It probably depends again, you know, in a large way on the end market. But you know, what we're typically seeing is kind of mid single digits in terms of revenue multiples and low teens, mid-teens in terms of EBITDA multiples. And as we think about it, that's kind of either on a run rate basis or a couple of months forward. But those are the typical valuations we see. Is it common for the companies of this size having EBITDAs? It's surprisingly, yeah. I, I think, I'd say a lot of these companies have very good profitability. About half the companies that we're investing in you know, have a healthy EBITDA margins, 20 30 40%. And if you think about it, it, it actually makes sense from the perspective of you know these are bootstrap companies that are run by the founders and they haven't raised large amounts of capital, if any capital, externally. So the way that they really kind of are able to de-risk or compensate themselves for the years that they've been building is to have these profitable businesses. Oftentimes, they're not thinking about though, how, how do I reinvest that either back into sales and marketing and kind of run a break-even business that can grow faster? Or alternatively, how do I, how do I reinvest it into M&A and kind of accelerate my inorganic growth? How do you source these deals? All these companies are private and it's pretty hard to find information on their revenue and everything else. I think a lot of that is the Insight Partners DNA. It's really being able to think about proactively identifying end markets, having strong theses, and then making sure that we have the team members that are really kind of focused on it. So similar to Insight, but obviously at a much smaller level, you know, we have associates that are really in the weeds. We're talking with them at a firm-wide level. At any point, we have somewhere between 10 and 15 subcategories and subsectors that we're really bullish on, right? And we're not talking government tech as a category. We kind of go, we'll double click and we'll say within government tech, there's transportation technology for cities, counties, and municipalities. And you know, our second deal, for instance, is within the towing space. So we'll kind of double click, triple click into a category and we'll really map the sector. We'll identify who are the 5,100 players in the space. And then we'll basically try to narrow that list down to 10 or 15 names that we really think are highly attractive. So we'll exclude companies that are either too large, too small, have raised too much money, are in a product category that we don't think is a attractive starting point. Oftentimes, we look for the system of records. So we're really trying to hone down, narrow it down to 10, 15 companies. And then we'll make an active uh, path to try to get through to those companies. And whether that's through our network, our contacts in the industry, 
you know, other CEOs that we leverage often that we've backed before that will introduce us or just really by having targeted outreach, whether that's emails or calls or creative ways like postcards and letters, we try to get through these CEOs and we try to show an understanding of their end market. You know, And it's very tailored in the way that we're trying to engage with them because we've built a thesis around that sector and we try to articulate why we believe their company is a winning company and how we believe that we could really add value beyond just the capital. Uh, and we have a pretty good success rate in terms of getting engagement with them and making sure that you know, we kind of are, are moving along the process. What percent of the companies you would say are actively trying to sell themselves versus you reaching out to them and they kind of starting thinking about sale? For scale companies, I think of companies that I, I worked with uh, when I was at Toma Bravo or Insight Partners, the mindset is always kind of everything is for sale for the right price. If a strategic or a sponsor comes knocking and is able to pay you a price that hits your return or your threshold or you think is an attractive value, everything is kind of open now. There's always kind of a cat and mouse dance as to who blinks first, but I think that's very much the approach of everything is more or less for sale, right? When you look at these smaller companies, a much smaller percentage. So I would say at any given point, single digit percentages of these companies are actively looking for someone. And, and, but the reality is they may be needing something which isn't a sale, which is operational help that we're able to provide that then catalyzes the sale. So if you think of what we offer beyond the capital is, hey, we'll help you hire talent, which you otherwise may have been struggling to hire a CMO or a CRO. You know, we'll help you think through the metrics that you should be tracking. A lot of these founders are maybe they know what retention is, but they don't know why it matters or they're not analyzing it in the same way. They don't think about sales reps and quota. And a lot of them even have awareness of, hey, here are the things that I'm really good at. But there's a handful of things that I, I really could be doing better. And I think more and more founders and companies are starting to realize that the capital is not the differentiator, it's the partner and their skill set. And what can they do after the investment? Commercial introductions, acceleration, how can they be that extension of the organization? So I think by demonstrating that, you're able to catalyze the conversation of hey, let's start talking about what you're going to do on the capital front. And a lot of founders don't also necessarily think initially of a control investment, right? I think if you think of the traditional mindset of an owner, they'll think, hey, why don't I just raise a VC round or a small round? I think, first of all, a lot of the companies that we're targeting are just not growing fast enough for the VCs to really get super excited. For the most part, venture capital funds are, are chasing companies that are growing triple digit, you know, 100, 200, 300% year over year. Whereas our companies are growing closer to 25 to 75%. So good growth, but they're kind of out of that target. But even if they were to say, get a, a minority investor, you know, at, at a sizable amount, the controls, and I always think of it as like a car, right? If you are selling 10% of your business, maybe the investor is willing to kind of sit more in the backseat and let you, the founder, drive the car. Once you start selling 30, 40%, the investor is going to kind of sit in the passenger seat and have a hand on the wheel, right? And then really at that point, the question is, is there really much difference between that and having the investor have their own wheel, right? Where you have a, a steering wheel and they have a steering wheel. The 
kind of analogy can be taken a little bit further of if you find a partner that's going to be really hands-on, it's not going to matter you know, whether they have a second steering wheel or not, as long as they're, again, really kind of value additive. So I think it's something that is, it's a relationship that has to be built. They're handing over you know, the most valuable asset, kind of an, a baby to an extent uh, that yeah. they've been building. And they really have to believe that you know, your vision aligns with theirs. So when you end up in a situation where you actually compete for the deal with another sponsor, how do you guys differentiate yourself? How do you guys win these deals? For the most part, we've been really fortunate in that most of our early investments have been one-on-one conversations, right? We have a view on the market. We, either we have a relationship with a, a CEO and a management team, or we have a view on the market, we identify in the company, and we kind of have a, a one-to-one conversation. But you know, there have been cases where, where we come up against other groups. One comes up in particular where we were up against two very reputable blue chip investment firms that were really kind of playing the market, which is, is rare, but does happen. Uh, I think given the quality of the asset and the opportunity set, and I think the way that we were able to differentiate, even though we were a firm that was less than a year old at that point was, again, I think we A, had a really good understanding of the market. So we were able to articulate that. And B, I think we were able to explain what was kind of the value of working with us and our thesis and view after the investment, what we would do proactively to help the company grow organically and inorganically. We laid out, I think, what I would imagine they would say would be a pretty thoughtful case around organic expansion, where we saw opportunities within the business, as well as on the M&A side, where we saw ancillary markets that we could really kind of expand their TAM and be able to accelerate their growth. And I think that's what differentiated us beyond these other two groups who maybe had longer track records, more reputable, had larger funds. But I think we were able to articulate that. And there's also some benefits in being a younger firm in that you know we don't have a portfolio that's 50 to 100 companies. But on the flip side, you know, that also means that the time and attention that we can spend on each company is, is disproportionately large. So I think that was definitely another reason that factored into that decision on their end. When you guys come to the agreement, how do you typically structure your deals? I mean, you mentioned that you get 55 to 80% ownership, rest is a rollover. How much debt do you put in? Is there any seller note, anything like that? Yeah. And this, again, it really is case dependent a lot of times on how we think about the valuation. What is the seller solving for? We'll structure it in lots of ways. It feels like more and more these days, earnouts are components of valuation and we're able to get sellers to really bet on themselves and say, hey, we believe the business is worth this today. But if they hit these growth targets that we have mutual discussions, they unlock and another tranche of proceeds to themselves or either cash compensation or, or stock that's issued to them. Uh, so I'd say that's a, a meaningful component. You know, seller notes are another way to solve it, right? Deferred compensation. And we definitely do consider debt. You know, I'd say we typically about 50% of the time will look to put debt on a business. And the other 50%, we will wait and maybe we'll use that as we think about M&A and we'll try to limit the equity investment necessary for the future add-on acquisitions that we do. We believe we're more conservative in terms of the quantum. So we're typically putting somewhere between one to two times revenue or ARR of debt on the business, or alternatively, kind of sub six times or sub five times EBITDA. Especially you know smaller companies, I think you want to be careful in terms of making sure you preserve the ability to invest in these initiatives and not have a large amount of cash flow being taken up to service the debt. But it feels like lenders these days are, are more and more understanding the market. And I think 
software specifically is it's a market that I think is similar from subscale to really scale, right? So if you think of the challenges and problems that a company that has 500 million of revenue to a company that has 50 million of revenue, and even extrapolating down to a company that has 10 million of revenue, they look and feel kind of the same. Their PLs are structured similarly, product development, their sales, you know, pain points and opportunities are the same. So I think lenders are more and more seeing the opportunity to play down market, even in the five to 15 million revenue range, and are wanting to align themselves with great management teams and great investors to be able to get their foot in the door as that company grows. And when it comes to these lenders, are we talking about banks or debt funds? Yeah, it's a mix. We have relationships with both groups. I think, again, it's really case-specific as to who has expertise in that end market and that category is able to really scale with the business. Can you walk me through the entire due diligence process? Or how long it takes and what are you guys particularly focused on? Yeah, absolutely. So the beauty of our firm is not only do we have a lot of the insight DNA, but we've added other investment professionals along the way. You know, one of our team members at the senior level comes from Luminate. You know, we have another one that's joining us from another firm in LA, Arrowroot. So I think we're able to really kind of think about the best practices and make sure that we really have a thoughtful and very you know, specific diligence approach that is also not overly cumbersome for management teams. So rather than just going through and checking a bunch of boxes, we really kind of identify out of the gate, you know, what are the data points and pieces that we really need to understand? And what are the things that, you know, it would be nice. The reality of, of investing in this end market and or rather this scale of company is that they oftentimes won't have all the data that you would necessarily want readily available. And it's not because for any other reason that they just haven't thought of tracking it. So we're oftentimes jumping in and getting raw data files and helping management really kind of sort through and pull out analytics and information out of their business. You know, I'd say our, our typical diligence period is anywhere from 30 days to 45 days. And in that time, we're able to kind of cover everything from in-depth financial diligence, business diligence, market analytics. You know, we're working with third-party accounting firms. We're working with third-party tech diligence firms that are going through the architecture, the security of the business. You know, If it's a healthcare IT asset, we're thinking about the HIPAA compliance and really bringing on third parties to help manage that. And additionally, we're really kind of working closely with our, our legal partners to analyze contracts, potential exposures, making sure insurance is really kind of buttoned up in the organization. And what is a very in-depth process oftentimes brings opportunities to light. So we'll talk with our management team very actively throughout the diligence process, having daily catch-ups with them. And, and look, it is, it is a more in-depth review of their business than they typically are doing. But what the vast majority of them say coming out of it is, you know, they say, hey, not only were you guys giving us opportunities, but as you were doing the diligence, we were realizing things about our own business things that we can improve, the questions that were asked, the things that it made us kind of analyze and go through our business, we realized, hey, you know, we should really button up this aspect of the business up. We have this pricing opportunity. We have this customer opportunity. So they really come out of it, I think, even before we start with our operational strategy during our hold period, they already start with really good insights as to ways that they can improve the business. But we do try to take a, a balanced approach of making sure we analyze every piece of the diligence and be extremely thorough, but also not overwhelm the management teams with requests that are unnecessary. How often does this uh, due diligence process lead you to the decision to pass on the investment? 
You know, it, it's a good amount. We, we try to do a lot of that discovery period before we really get into exclusivity. And I always think about diligence as being twofold, right? There's the work you do before you get into exclusivity with a business and the work you do that is after exclusivity. And, and I always think of your work after exclusivity is really needing to be more confirmatory on the business diligence. Obviously, you're going through, you're making sure that the company owns their product and there's no legal red flags or their accounting systems are all good. But we really try to cross a lot of those potential deal killer questions, I'll call them. We try to address them ahead of getting into exclusivity. And I think that's important because you really want to make sure that you, you know, you're really following through on your commitment to the management team. And that's where, look, we analyze hundreds of businesses over the past nine months. And the vast majority of them, we don't invest in. We've closed two investments. We have two other companies that we're in the process of, of investing in. But on the sideline is you know hundreds and hundreds of companies that we decided not to lean in. Uh, so I'd say the, the vast majority of companies you decide for one reason or another. You know, sometimes it's how far along they are in the, on the product cycle. You know, oftentimes it's the competitive dynamics of the market they're in. You know, sometimes it's a good business, but it's 12 months, 24 months earlier than we really have conviction that they are kind of the clear market leader in a category, or you know, something around their financial profile that we figure out is not interesting. You know, and another thing that's important is obviously valuation. Not something you ask, but a lot of the businesses that we end up passing on is because the valuations are, are higher than we feel comfortable paying. We want to make sure that we have strong returns for our investors and you know, our limited partners. So I think we want to be really, really thoughtful around the prices that we're paying for these businesses. So that's also a pretty meaningful reason why we don't end up following, going all the way to the finish line. You mentioned that you guys uh, made two acquisitions, and I believe one of them is auto return. Can you walk me through the whole process, like from sourcing to investment thesis, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. So really interesting story. I'd had a good amount of experience in the GovTech space, having worked with three companies that played in that space, including one business that I, I backed at Insight called Pay It, and you know, really thought that it was a, a really attractive market that had a lack of technology adoption, right? So there are certain categories and end markets that just are years, if not decades, behind the curve. And the government space is definitely one of them. So had always, you know, liked the transportation aspect of it and had really specifically liked the towing piece of it. Really a, a big problem as cities think about managing their towing fleets. And right around the time that we we're, you know, spending a lot of time in the category, you know, one of the CEOs that I'd worked with in the past, you know, actually met another CEO, John Wicker, at a conference, and they were kind of talking to each other, founder to founder. And John Wicker was saying, "Hey, listen, kind of thinking it may be time to kind of bring on an institutional investor. I'm, I'm having lots of groups reach out to me and ping me." And the CEO that that I'd worked before say, "You know, listen, why don't you talk to my buddy Vlad and see where it takes you? You know, maybe he'll give you some advice. Who knows?" And John and I connected, and I immediately knew that. Hey, this is exactly the company that we've kind of been chasing in this category and sector. So there was no banker, no formal process, but two other groups that they were talking to. And, and I think we were able to really, as I mentioned earlier, really be able to explain what our vision and strategy was for that business and be able to kind of position ourselves, you know, as the preeminent partner for them, regardless of kind of the valuation that we were at. So I think 
that was a, a really exciting business, and, and we've since closed on the investment. You know, about a month, month and a half ago, and, and we've made a lot of progress. You know, really kind of helping them scale their sales organization. You know, we're evaluating a couple really strategic M and A acquisitions that will kind of expand our our reach and breadth. And additionally, we're really kind of helping them think through down market product and how they can really again expand internationally. Though know, they they are the leading provider of. Uh, of towing uh, solutions for cities and municipalities. So if you think of the way that you know cities before using auto return would have solved their towing problem, you'd have a police officer or a parking enforcement official by the side of the road. Let's say there someone's parked next to a fire hydrant, or there's been an accident uh, on the side of a highway, and they have to initiate a tow. You know they would call nine one one dispatch. The same people that pick up the line and say, "Hey, you know what's your emergency." They would call them. Those people would in turn look at a literal sheet of paper that sometimes would be pinned up in their cubicle, look at the 10 to 20 towing operators that operate within the city, narrow down to the handful that work in that part of town, call them manually, a handful of them manually, and then those towing operators call tow truck drivers. Yeah, you can you get I already the hate this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. This whole process is, yeah. is very drawn out, right? And what auto return has done is really built the leading solution in the market to be able to automate all of this. So now, you know, in an auto return world, cities have uh, all the tow truck drivers in a city have an app on their phone. Think of an Uber like solution. Yeah. You know, the solution understands where they are. So when a job is requested by a police officer or uh, someone in the dispatch office, you know, it then automatically routes it to the closest tow truck driver who can pick that up, right? Based on the size of the car that they're picking up and their truck, they get a notification, accept or deny. They show up in the job at the location within 10 minutes instead of within an hour. And on top of it, it's huge, huge benefit for the city and the constituent because the city is able to have visibility into what happens to that car after, right? So, and the citizen can also go onto the auto return website and be able to type in the, their license plate number or their VIN, and it says, "Hey, your car is located at Second and Main, you know, at this lot, and you owe two hundred bucks, let's say, for the tow." So, you know, they're the the clear market leader, hundred percent customer retention since inception, ninety to ninety five market share. They've won. 30 of the last 32 RFPs. So really kind of a greenfield space. But I kind of mentioned a lot of the opportunities they were thinking up until May, they'd had one sales rep. They had expanded internationally. But funny enough, the reason they expanded internationally was because their founder went and took a vacation to Italy, um, <laughs> took a day or two off, hired a translator and walked around in Rome with a city hall and convinced them to use the solution. And then from there, they won Naples. So it's just a one of these opportunities you think of and you're like, well, yeah, clearly this should be automated. There's no reason that yeah. this telephone, literal telephone game yeah, should this happen. It's crazy. I can't I can't believe that's that's exist. And so you said it's not a crowded place. No. So I mean, basically we're the leader in the space, right? We have 90 okay. to 95 percent market share. You know, there's a handful of, of smaller players, but you know, we really kind of have that leading product. And and it's because, you know, they spent years innovating and building this really rich feature set. Um, mm-hmm. And we're really excited about, again, helping them take it from where they are now, which is kind of the large blue chip cities like San Francisco, Denver, Philadelphia, Indianapolis, and Baltimore, and really kind of get it to where it's all across the US. And it's applicable, not just in cities, but states and counties, you know, smaller cities. And even if you extrapolate it to think of you know, a large apartment building or an airport or a HOA that kind of sees towing as their last 
step in the parking enforcement, that's something that they would love to have that integrates with their product property management tool. I'm looking at my window. There are three cars that I want to tow. I swear to God, I, I, they're annoying. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about it right now. We're working on a product that will hopefully you know, help you in, uh, in the next you know, three to six months. One thing I can say, just take my money. Like I, I, want, I want to be an investor. <laughs> it does sound fantastic, uh, really. Good luck with that investment. I'm sure it's going to turn out very well. That's kind of the story, I say, with a lot of our companies, right? They're in these we kind of think of sometimes unloved, maybe not the sexiest category, but they're just that indispensable, you know, system of record. We always ask ourselves when we diligence, you know, can you run your business without this tool? And if you can't, you know, that's a product category that we want to be in. So when you buy in the company, do you automatically think of the exit strategy right away? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I touched on this a little bit earlier. When we think about our vision, you know, we're really doing that during the diligence process and, and try to align with management to make sure that, it, that we see it the same way, right? If we have one vision and they have another, that's going to be a potential conflict point multiple times along the way. So we immediately think, you know, are we solving for market share gain, like an auto return? You know, are we solving for just kind of growth and profitability and EBITDA? We kind of think of it as you know, the two worlds of, you know, are you optimizing for revenue with a break-even profile or are you optimizing for EBITDA with, again, good growth, but you're really kind of more focused on unit economics dropping down to the bottom line. And you manage those businesses slightly differently, right? We have a playbook at Nexa that, you know, we'll really kind of put to work, but the decisions you make along the way are different. And it really kind of comes down to, you know, what is the growth rate of the business typically at least in this current market environment, if you're going above 30%, buyers will typically think about a revenue multiple. And if you're below 20%, typically an EBITDA multiple, somewhere between 20 to 30% is a agrarian. It's not you know, hard lines, but ballpark how we think about it. But it's also you know, what is the product category and how competitive is the market? You know, what is the subsector and industry? That helps drive a lot of our decision-making. And we definitely try to manage to one or the other. Most of our buyers are likely to be larger, you know, sponsors like other private equity groups or growth equity groups, right? So if it's a really high growth company growing 70, 80%, it's more likely that that someone who is a path to IPO growth investor is going to be interested, someone like a TCV. Alternatively, if it's more of a profitable business and, you know, still good growth, it may be someone like an Insight or a Tomo Bravo or a Providence Future Growth might be someone who goes and invests in our business. So that's how we kind of think about it. And those are probably the more likely people that we think as buyers. We also definitely have strategics in there, but we just don't want to optimize for a small group of potential buyers given, you know, you never know what their timing is or what their appetite is. But definitely I think that's a, a potential path as well. Do you discuss this with the founders as well? Yeah, absolutely. We try to be very, very open about every aspect. In fact, after we invest in the business, we'll show up and we'll walk through our investment committee memo and our underwriting thesis and the materials. And we try to be very transparent because I think that's really where you get the best possible outcomes is where you again have that true partnership with the management team and you're kind of trying to solve for each other's pain points, right? So for instance, we're really functioning as that outsource corp dev team for our companies when we think about M&A. 
So we're doing everything from identifying you know, the subcategory, mapping the players, engaging with them, negotiating the deals, diligencing them, and oftentimes really even helping with integration. So in that sense, we're an extension of the company. And this is a huge service that a lot of our portfolio companies see as valuable. And on the flip side, we're also not in there day to day. Look, our operating partners are heavily involved, but same, they're not employees of the portfolio companies. So we really need to make sure that you know, we see eye to eye with management and we kind of have that same vision as to, you know, what does success look like? What are we solving for? Right. And we'll even go as far as to say, listen, if we hit this target of customers, that translates to X revenue, which translates to what we think is this potential exit uh, band. And by the way, management team, this is what you would make in your rollover equity. This is what you make in profits interests, which we have in every one of our companies. And it just, you're able to kind of really have that transparency, which which I think you know sometimes is not present in the industry. Well, Vlad, thanks very much for your time in this interview and best of luck to you and Nexa. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to listening to future podcasts.